Come on around back, Arizona, Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour of Rosie on the house. Your Saturday morning tradition since 1988. Already the first Saturday of the month, so if you're following along in the Rosie on the House homeowner handbook, you know we're talking farm fresh commodities and we've got alfalfa and forage crops on the topic today. Julie Murphy, spokeswoman for the Arizona Farm Bureau, is in studio with... With Paco Allerton. Before I start asking him and pelting him with questions, did you know nationally alfalfa is one of the most commonly produced forage crops? You and I don't chomp down on it, but our cattle... Our equine, all of our horses, and I know you have some horses, Romy, so you're always feeding flakes of hay to them, right? Oh, we we have a, a, a respectable hay budget. <laughs> so, Mother used to, and I know most equine people do call them hay burners, but we brought in studio one of our Pinal County farmers, Paco Allerton, and He's well-versed uh, on forage crops and certainly growing them. You grow alfalfa, paco, tiff grass, and all that fun stuff. But before we even get into the commodity we're talking about, uh, tell us the Paco Allerton or the Allerton farm family story. Well, um, my family came down from the Kyrene area, South Tempe, back in the 46 or 47. They moved into the Maricopa area. They used to farm up there. My grandfather farmed at that point in the Kyrene area. Um, my uncle, my dad, and my grandfather came down into Maricopa. They moved into Stanfield sometime later, and then everybody kind of branched off from there. And uh, I was always involved with the farm, uh, went off and did some other things while I, after I went to school, um, came back, and I've been, this will be my 44th year um, planting cotton in a row now uh, that I've been back. So. Awesome. Yeah. And um, you you kind of, if I remember the stories, the Murphy and, Murphys and the Allertons have known each other for quite some time. You, you didn't at first know for sure if you'd come back to the farm, or did you always know? You know, that's a good question. I saw that the other day, and I've, I've thought about that quite a bit. I just always wanted to be, but it, at one point in time, I, I, I was really kind of enjoying the city life and, and doing something different. And um, having weekends off, I guess, was kind of an interesting little in an eight-to-five job, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, I that never that happens for, in farming. <laughs> no, that doesn't happen in farming. Right, there's always something going on, but I, I also did miss it. And I guess my dad picked up on it, and so... Uh, he ended up buying another. He'd sold in '77, and that's one of the reasons that I ran off and did some other things for a couple of years, and uh, came back. And he'd bought another farm, and I started back in December of 1980 and planted my first grain crop that year. And then '81, we planted some cotton and been doing it ever since, and a variety of other crops since then. So you never looked back. So um, I gotta ask this: How's Pinal County doing after the? CAP surface water cuts. You know, it's it's kind of interesting, but I, they seem we seem to be surviving. Um, it's you know we don't have as much water as we used to, um, and uh, but I don't. Everybody's managed to cope with it and uh, is managing uh, just like we are. It gets a little bit more difficult every year because we keep losing more allocation. Um, is I've been cut three years in a row, and it's just getting to the point where, uh, 
You know, I don't know when will it end. There's a lot of us who are very concerned about what is going on with water, with the state of the state, you know, and the Department of Water Resources. As you know, we had the Aggies had the um, press conference at the Capitol on Tuesday. Yep. They're talking about the AMA and Gila Bend and trying to get more control. And there just seems to be a lot of controversy. So... Um, it's not really leaving us with a good positive feeling, but I still believe that there's going to be some sort of agriculture in Pinal County um, as long as they can afford to do it, which has you know, been the big question for probably the last 44 years since I've been back, too, to tell right. you the truth. And, you know, we're t- since our commodity is forage uh, and we're specifically going to talk a lot about alfalfa, and people do ask the question, why are we growing alfalfa in the desert? Well, alfalfa has a tendency to have to really support the local market. Well, not a tendency, it does. And uh, the estimate is 80% of the alfalfa we grow actually goes to our dairies, um, certainly our equine. And all of this has to be co-located, especially dairy, because it just doesn't make sense to transport such a fresh product across well, the country. And such a heavy product. And such a heavy and, product, yeah. You know, you go to one of these big feedlots, you know, there's a lot of mouths to feed in those right. dairy cattle. And yeah. the amount of trucking expense that would incur if you were having to bring these, feed these guys daily from, you know, yeah. out of state, that'd be When it comes to, I like to tell people, crippling. it's like one mouth removed. Uh, alfalfa goes to the cattle and then... We enjoy all the fresh local dairy products. 97% of the milk in the dairy case is coming from our local Arizona dairies. And and that's the case in most all states. They they have to have dairies. Well, dairies have to have alfalfa. So it's really important. And, you know, one of my other questions for you, Paco, was about the challenges. And it sounds like the water challenge continues to be the challenge. If you've been cut three years in a row... What do you have to do then? Do you have to kind of change up your water or your crop portfolio? You obviously have to cut back maybe on the amount of acres that you're watering. I mean, well, actually, what we've mostly done is cut back on the acres that we're uh, we're irrigating, and uh, we've been uh, you know we started this little adventure getting back into the forage things about five years ago. Um, I just planted some alfalfa this past fall. For the first time in years, we've been primarily growing triticale in, in the in the planting it in late fall, early winter, taking it off in mid-spring, and then planting teff grass behind it for the recreational horse market also, which is a different, it's kind of like a Bermuda, but it a, brings a little bit more premium for the horse market. Um, it's got a, it's not, uh, what I want to say, the way they keep telling it to me is, is teff grass is for the recreational rider that doesn't use their horse as hard or ride them as mm. much on a daily basis. and it's So they an maybe int- don't need as much protein maybe? Is it- right. And there is some protein in it because it does have a seed, but we don't let it go to seed because we've had some problems with it getting in between the teeth and the gums and mm. in, in, in some horse. And my wife's horse, her friend, has got some. That was the first time we had they had some. But we're doing both those crops and we're keeping something, you know, in a field, to, you know, 12 months out of the year following each other and we're using about the same amount of water as we were growing a cotton crop, which is kind of interesting. The triticale doesn't take much water. The teff grass is a low water use crop. Both those crops don't require as much fertilizer. 
Um, it's just been kind of interesting for us. And then we've got cash flow all the year long. Which um, is what we need in farming. What is, for the listener, what is triticale? Triticale is a wheat rye cross, and it does form a head. It forms a seed, but the variety we're growing is an onless variety. It's primarily been going to uh, livestock, too, the dairy guys. We bale some. We've, we've green chopped some um, for the dairy guys in the past. Most of it goes in big bales. I mean, we've even talked about shipping it into Texas when they were having drought problems two years ago, serious drought problems, but never got there with it. Um, and for the listener, too, on these crops, they're, everything's increased in cost. And uh, the dairies, we have to be cheering them on right now because they're hurting a lot because the cost of feed is uh, multiple times higher than it was, you know, three years ago. So, or even six months ago. So we've got to cheer them on. But we're, despite all this, we're all farming. We're all committed to keeping our local food supply supplied. And also alfalfa, at least 15 to 20% of it is international. But you've used technologies, Paco, to improve and create efficiencies can you talk a little bit about that, even maybe the basin irrigation? Well, yeah. I'm, you know, we can go and talk about drip. There's even alfalfa being planted on drip, which is saving a lot of water. Um, technology advancement and sprinkler design with sprinkler systems and nozzle changes, uh, different sizes. And they're growing, you know, um, alfalfa underneath pivots or linear sprinkler moves. And they're drilling it on five, five and a quarter acre feet of water a year, which is a lot less than on the old furrow irrigated or flood irrigated, even in level basin, we used to use a lot of water. But um, we've learned a lot about it. Um, big heads of water, also larger heads of water in smaller restricted places, um, we've been leveling up this one farm. I've got drip on one farm that we're doing cotton. We've done watermelons on, don't have any alfalfa on it. But the other farm where we've leveled it up and we're a lot more efficient than what we used to be and using less water to grow the crops we are because of those technologies and high volume ports or turnouts if you've got the size of water flow that you need. So there's a lot of things that you're constantly doing. And then, of course, there's the adaptability of it. And where you're farming. I'm sure some of the things that you're doing on one farm, you can't do on the other farm, either because of soil conditions, uh, the infrastructure that's built into it. Is that always influence what you might do on one farm versus another one? Well, actually, you know, and back to technology, I mean, moisture probes has helped a lot, too. That We've become better managers of our water. Um, we're using those moisture probes. Don't always completely trust them, to be perfectly honest, but they're, they're, they're getting, we're getting more comfortable with them. We've been working with moisture probes for about six years now. Um, we've got weather stations set up, remote weather stations set up on each farm that we have. And we can, we can actively look at it any time about what the temperature is, what the high, the low was for the night, how much rainfall we had, humidity levels, awesome. solar radiation. I mean, it's just, and you got a permanent record. You can back up your de- and look at how much rain you had in a given year. And it's just amazing, That's the, amazing the information we get from it. And we can tie it in with these moisture probes. And this year we also put temperature sensors out in a cotton field in the canopy tied to the weather station. Well, let's find out a little bit more about that in the second segment. 
alfalfa and forage crops is our topic today in the Farm Fresh Hour with Julie Murphy from the Arizona Farm Bureau and our, your farmer today, Paco Allerton. And you didn't really go into this is kind of, you know, farming royalty you have in here today. Uh, it is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel blessed to have him here. He's my go-to guy when it comes to media things. Uh, so I think sometimes he may try to hide from me at times. But No uh, comment. No comment. <laughs> You're pleading the fifth. Uh, just a few more facts about alfalfa because even though we're kind of covering the broad spectrum of forage crops, I just like to highlight this, especially because it is the most commonly produced forage crop. But it digests at a f- faster rate than most other grasses, including corn silage. Alfalfa is high in protein. It provides needed minerals and vitamins. So it's really a good source of nutrition for our livestock. And again, Paco Allerton from Pinal County, one of our growers. So we were kind of talking about some of the technologies, and you were mentioning soil probes, and you were kind of highlighting this, this something new that now it even can help you with. Yeah, t- temperature. It's te- um, interesting because last summer was so hot, and we noticed at the end of June, 1st of July, that we were dipping into uh, the lows, we're getting into the 80s, according to our weather station. And so I started thinking about it. I mean, what is the temperature in the field, in the canopy, compared to out on open ground, which is exposed? And you've got all the solar radiation coming up from the soil. And it's actually the one where we had this at was at our drip station. So I started thinking about it, and I started talking to my tech guy. And he goes, well, you know, for $100 a piece, we can put (laughs) sensors out in the field that'll tie in. And it's pretty dramatic, the difference in temperature on the low side, especially in, in the mornings, which would sometimes happen at 3 in the morning. Sometimes it would happen just before sunrise, which is, I remember as a paper boy, when you got up and you're folding your newspapers, and in the winter, it would always get colder just before as, as the sun was coming up. Right. And we saw as much as an 8 or 9 degree difference in temperature in cooler in the field than at the weather station. But even with that, I mean, cotton it gets into a level 1 heat stress if you have an overnight temperature of above 80 degrees. And what happens there is, is you get pollen sterilization, and so the, 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 the seeds will not form in seed, in which produces the lint in a cotton plant. And above 85 is what they call level 2, which is pretty extreme, and so it gets a little bit worse. And we actually had nighttime temperatures in the mid-90s, but in the field it was still in the upper 80s, I mean, in some of those nights. And we had about 20 of those days of over 80-degree temperatures for the low. And if I remember right, I think we had about eight or nine days where it was above 85 or even in the low 90s for the lows, which was just detrimental of the cotton crop oh this last summer i hope we don't have the level of the heat wave this coming summer that we did last summer but uh, you just paco it strikes me that oh my gosh you know you're farming and we can with the technology really drill down on it which prompts me to also ask what is one of the most unusual or interesting crops that you've ever grown if maybe you'd say all of them because they've all got their own unique characteristics or requirements but anyone that even if it's just your favorite 
Oh, well, my favorite was actually the watermelons, the seedless okay. watermelons. I mean, mostly because, I mean, Aggie, my dog, my yellow lab, I mean, every morning I spoiled her when we were growing watermelons. And you'd go out to the field and you'd cut a melon off the vine, split it in half and cut the heart up into small chunks for her. And she'd just sit there and dig in. She loved watermelons. And watermelons were always, in this particular farm, really did a nice job. And we actually worked with a nutritionist or a crop consultant that helped us with the fertility program that you can do you can add some things that'll bring the sugars up on watermelons and there's Mm. lots of things you can do to help the rind set and be a little bit firmer so it's more um, shippable Um, honestly I think probably one of the most fun crops I really ever grow from just grew from just the growing part of it was as we did some broccoli seed production for the sprout market for the southeast uh, southeast Asia um, alfalfa wow. sprouts or uh, not alfalfa sprouts, broccoli sprouts, they're, they're equivalent over there to Dr. Oz was touting them as a superfood. And we tied in with a company out of Yuma. Um, I can't remember the name right now off the top of my head. And we grew some um, broccoli sprouts for quite a few years. And that was interesting. Did some arugula um, coriander for seed production also did a little bit of onion seed, just a little small plot. Really didn't turn out that well. That was kind of a mess, but uh, it was that was an interesting thing to do. You know, you're also proof, and you, you representing all of our farmers and ranchers, that you have to be a scientist. You have to take risk and assess. You have to uh, say a lot of prayers when it comes to farming, too, I think. Yeah, you, you <laughs> or be hopeful, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, you just, I mean, I kind of, I used to say it was like a fifty-fifty thing. The inputs of what I put into it as management and Mother Nature was the other fifty yeah. percent. But you know, I'm lying to myself, and it's more like five percent me and ninety-five percent Mother Nature anymore. Sure. It seems like. What? what? Well, I have a question that we'll probably have to ask in the next segment because we want to kind of concentrate on Arizona agriculture a little bit more. And I'm going to ask you what fascinates you the most about Arizona agriculture, but we'll do that in the next segment. the goals we have with the Farm Fresh Hours to connect the homeowners with the local commodities coming out of our local farms and ranches. Now, obviously, uh, we're, we're one process disconnected here. It was, we're not eating alfalfa, but right. what, it, what alfalfa, what feeds off of it, you know, is like you had mentioned a lot, all of our dairy, our beef, right. our... Yeah, it's just so important. Alfalfa promotes animal health for our livestock because of all the minerals, vitamins, and protein. But I also like to highlight what one of my other Pinal County farmers says, Nancy Kaywood. She says alfalfa is milk chocolate in the making. (laughs) (laughs) Because so many of us, especially kids, love their chocolate milk. She's her point, and by the way, the chocolate milk is not made by brown cows, but uh, uh, her point is that it's that close in our food supply, local food supply chain, and so alfalfa and so many of the other forage crops that are part of the mix of the diet. Uh, pretty soon, we're going to share a reel on our Instagram account 
highlighting from one of our dairy farmers how they prepare the food. I mean, dairy cows have nutritionists. I don't. So I'm thinking they eat a little bit better than me. And thanks to Paco and growing alfalfa, then we're doing good. So I wanted to ask you in this segment, Paco, what fascinates you the most about the Arizona agriculture industry in general? The, the Overall, the ag industry in the state, uh, honestly, is Yuma. And it, the right. vegetable production is just in what's going on down there this time of the year being the salad bowl for the United States and the different mixes of crops, it just never ceases to amaze me that what's going on and the different crops and the amount of people that are required to bring that produce right. in, the celery, the, the, the leafy greens, the, the iceberg lettuce. I mean, it's just the list just goes on and on and on, the spinach and, and the issues they've had with, uh, you know, back a few years back with the E. coli mm-hmm. and the romaine and the fact that they managed to persevere and they just keep going at it. And it's just incredible to me and the millions of dollars that they contribute to oh. the state economy. Yeah. The ag Over as a whole. Billion. What is it? I mean, $23 billion the ag industry contributes. Is our overall here in Arizona. Yeah. yeah. It's just. And then it, just that the Yuma farmers with the produce, it's. Two billion itself, and that's just cash receipts. That's not counting all the other, like the wage earners that are part of the whole process. And one of the newest statistic that I learned from from the Leafy Greens uh, Association in Yuma was that they produce on a daily basis in the peak of this winter season one hundred and seventy million servings a day that go all across the United States and into Canada. So obviously in the dead of winter, we're still eating our leafy greens, our spinach, our salads. And, and you know, we're making uh, soup and stuff with some of our leafy greens too. There's some great recipes, by the way, on fillyourplate.org and then some of the other ag associations. But it's just amazing what they do. So I agree with you on that. But let's now um, zero in on forage crops. Is there... Do you have any commentary, too, along the same lines? Do you have a favorite forage crop that you like to grow? Or um, or yeah. what fascinates you about growing forage crops? You know, that's kind of an interesting question, and I saw that the other day, and I'm like, I don't know if I have an answer for that one, to be perfectly honest. But uh, I, I like them. Uh, the triticale is interesting. Uh, doesn't require as much water. Doesn't require as much fertilizer. Really Low seeding rates, um, really reasonable for us to grow. Uh, the teff grass is also interesting. I think they're both equally interesting to grow for me to watch it happen uh, and knowing where it's going. I mean, the 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 triticale for one is mostly going to dairy, which is you know going to transform into milk or. Some of it has gone to the feedlot, too, or cattle. So, you know, it's like uh, Rosie said, you know, we're kind of like he and I are both the same. We're kind of vegetarians. You know, we're eating the beef that was, you know, fed vegetables. So I kind of think I'm a vegetarian sometimes. (laughs) Um, And the milk products uh, in the teff grass, I mean, it's... uh, Because all beef is... All beef and dairy are vegetarians. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> grains and, and, and feed, you know, alfalfa or whatever. Right. I, I just can't wait till they invent that cow that has a, a replaceable backstrap. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. just go in and take a back more. strap about every eight months. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or more than one tri-tip cut. Yeah, yeah. There you, now you're talking, yes, tri-tip, exactly, yeah. So I think you said you've been farming for 44 years straight, right? This will be my 44th year back, yes. So from when you first started, what are the most significant changes that you've seen with crop management slash water management? Let's talk on the insecticide for a minute okay. because insecticides has been really interesting, the transformation there, because we've gone from the old harsh chemistries that were developed, you know, within, in, in actually before World War II and some of the things that were used, you know, to exterminate, you know, the Jews in the gas ovens. Oh. And those were some of those things. You know, I hate to bring that up. I'm sorry if I offended somebody, but— uh, it just kind of goes back to that. We don't have those anymore. We have insect-specific chemistries. And I think the greatest thing that's happened, evolved there for us in the industry is, is in, in the, and I know the facts on cotton. I don't know about the other things, but we've gone from an average of almost eight sprays per field per year 10 years ago to we're less than two sprays per field today. Mostly because of transgenics and gene technology and cotton has helped quite a bit, and it's evolving still with the new Thrive-On, which is the gene, which is the piercing-sucking insect thing. Um, so you're saying, uh, to get this in my head, that they are, insecticides have become pest-specific, and they're not as harsh, Right. They're not as harsh on the environment, you know, and we get accused of being, you know, overusing and, and, and destroying the environment. But what a lot of people don't understand is, is the agriculture farmers in a, as a whole don't want to destroy their, their land. I mean, you've got to keep it productive. Right. Otherwise, you're going to be out of business. Now, we've all said that before. Um, and, and it's an honest-to-God truth. I mean, we go through crop rotation. It's not monoculture. We're not doing the same thing every year. We're rotating different crops into different fields for organic matter to help them and then let them sit out for maybe a part of a year so that they kind of get a chance to recover. It's just kind of like going on a vacation for you or me. Um, I think that and Fertile and technology has helped us become more efficient with our water use, a lot more efficient. Uh, we're using a lot less water. In fact, Maricopa Stanfield Irrigation District, we're pumping a third of the water we used to pump 40 years ago. And yet improving the yields. That's what I've been told. The, our yield production, which is kind of our measurement, how many within an acre, what are your yields? And it's there's, they have still still grown, and part of that seed technology, water improvements, applying it when it's most needed. And fertility management has helped a lot. Uh, irrigation systems, too. I mean, a prime example, when we grew watermelons, your average yield coming off a watermelon crop on a year were probably about 20, 20 tons per acre per year on a furrow irrigated situation. But drip basically doubled that yield and used less water. Wow. Because we went to an average of about 38 or 39 tons year in, year out when we were planting watermelons on the drip. So the average, myself included, consumer would say, well, then why isn't every farmer on drip? And then I've asked that question of experts like you, and it's sometimes it's soil, sometimes it's cost, 
if you're leasing land, it's not a wise investment if it's a limited lease. Why aren't we on more drip? Well, I think you hit it on the nail head. A lot of it is lease ground. Um, there's also some soils out there that you can put drip on that really don't improve your efficiency that much compared to level basin, uh, to tell you the truth. Um, we've seen that where I had a friend back in the early 80s put in a bunch of drip on a farm there in Stanfield, and it was buried drip. And about four years later, he realized he wasn't saving that much water, hadn't increased his yield, so he pulled the drip out and went back to just using the doing the level basin thing. particular farm that we're on that we put the drip on 22 years ago this year, um, we were burning up about seven, seven and a half feet a year growing a cotton crop, and we're down to about four and a half to five on an average. Last year was an extreme because it was so hot, mm. and then it came out of uh, out of uh, dormancy late in August, and we knew that we didn't have a very good crop, and we carried it a lot later last year, and we used up quite a bit more water, even with the drip. But overall, we've done about a 35 to 40% savings in the fertilizer reduction, too, in management of labor. We don't have an irrigator out there all the time, so it's a little bit better for the environment. We're not putting out as much you know, CO2 right. with the vehicle running around. So... Go ahead. Just to elaborate on that a little bit, when you're saying you went from seven to four feet, you're talking acre feet of water. And to put that in perspective, an acre foot is just over 325,000 gallons. So you were going from seven acre feet down to four. That's almost a million gallons of water saved. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You've got your facts right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've done your homework. <laughs> I, I just remember. Yeah. <laughs> and I even, I've heard it enough. I, I've also been told irrigation to irrigation things are district to irrigation district things are different. One of our farmers I mentioned to Earth earlier, Nancy Kaywood of Kaywood Farms, they can't use drip on their farm because their irrigation district where they get their water, there's just it, – it's – Got too much stuff in it. It has too much silt. Yes, too I, much I, silt, I, yeah. I farmed in the in the San Carlos district, yeah. and it does. You would you would have to have a great big settling pond and fill it up with water and let that silt set settle. for a while to settle in the bottom of that pond before you pull it out. Okay. In fact, we're actually running into problems with that right now, even with CAP water a little bit. We're oh, picking really? up a lot of silt coming hmm. down the system now. Hmm. Uh, what's one fact or point about Arizona agriculture's industry that you always talk to people about? Um, boy, that's a good question. I think, honestly, um, there's two things if I've got the time. One is, is, and I haven't been shot for this one yet. I haven't had anything thrown at me. But whenever I address a crowd <laughs> that really is not that familiar with agriculture, I kind of remind them. And I don't mean to be disrespectful or arrogant about this statement, but – most people in this valley don't realize if it wasn't for agriculture, you wouldn't have this infrastructure with the water system that SRP has right here. And this valley would not be here if it wasn't for that. And the farmers are the ones that got that done. The same thing in Casa Grande with the San Carlos Irrigation and Drainage District. Uh, my other thing that I like to tout a bit, and the numbers have changed a little bit over the years, but less than 1% of the 
working population, voting working population is our farmers today. Wow. But 15% of that working voting population is involved in agriculture in all the different industries that are, are tagged with agriculture, the manufacturers, the equipment, the fertilizer dealers, chemical distributors, you name it. Everybody that's involved in agriculture totals 15%, which is a lot bigger than the less than 1%. It makes me nervous, though, too. I have to confess, I think of the Murphy family and, you know, my generation, none of the siblings are farming. And, you know, <laughs> farmers and ranchers coming from all diverse groups of people and stuff, whether they're first generation, second, third, fourth, fifth generation here in the state of Arizona, when we're that small and we get smaller, we've had some challenges of of you know, inspiring the next generation to come into it. But there's so much work. And I remember uh, Arizona Farm Bureau's president, Stephanie Smallhouse, actually just yesterday, she said, we're farming is the only industry where we subsidize ourselves. We have to have a second job in order to keep running the farm. Feeling good was easy, Lord, when Bobby sang the blues. Chris Christopherson. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Got to tell the story. We just had a discussion uh, earlier before the segment started that we decided Paco Allerton looks like Chris Christopherson. Uh, you can at least be brothers, you know. Okay, I'll accept it. <laughs> and I'll, I'll throw in Jeff Bridges, too. Yeah, yeah Jeff Bridges. On, on the side. So. He won an Oscar, by the way. Yeah. Oh, thank you. So I'm thinking we might need to finish up this great conversation, Paco. This hour has gone by way too fast, I always do, on the water issue. Is there anything, again, you've got an audience here. Um, you're an agriculturalist, farmer, cotton, wheat, alfalfa, everything, watermelons. What, what are you going to tell the consumer today that they need to know as it relates to the future of farming and water? Boy, um, that's a tough one. I'm tough. Pray. I know. <laughs> Pray. Yeah. I'm asking too many tough questions, aren't I? Actually, yeah, it's, it really is. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we keep preaching this, you know, you, you don't want to lose agriculture in this country. This is one of the things this country was founded on from the beginning was agriculture, and we seem to be importing more and more produce and stuff, and there's more and more being grown across the border in Mexico and um, everybody talks about you know, exporting water with the alfalfa market going export, but nobody thinks about the water we're importing from other countries with produce. But um, and I've, that's another thing that I've touted for years is you know you thought OPEC was bad in the early '70s with what they did with the prices of oil and cutting. Um, they're pumping and restrictions and stuff. I keep it just scares me to think about it moving forward in this this day and age. I mean, with everything that is coming in, and the American consumers were literally spoiled because you know if you go to the produce department, you tell me what time of the year you don't find strawberries in the grocery store. You right. tell me what time of the year you don't find citrus or apples. And there's a lot of the stone fruits, even some of the stone fruits that come up out of South America. It, the American consumer is just spoiled in my mind. I mean, because everything is available to them year-round. Very little is there not other than a few little select little specialty crops like the Rainier cherries, the little right. y- yellow ones, you know, and 
And this, there's some other ones too. So, um, so, and because of that, we've had a tendency to lose our sense of seasonal fruits and vegetables because if we truly, if the grocery stores were truly just supp- supplying exclusively what was in season in your particular region of the country, then, you know, but no, we get kiwi year round. We get some of the other things you're talking about. The other thing that strikes me that, Oftentimes, we don't keep in mind as if Yuma right now is the lettuce bowl of the world, uh, basically, or the United States for sure. When we go into the produce aisle in our grocery store, that's all coming from Yuma. That's local produce, all the leafy greens in particular. And um, it's just like you said, it takes water to grow. It's a food security issue. Um, and we we have to get this water thing right, I and we have to keep working. And I really believe our Aggies are doing that. Senator Kerr introduced Senate Bill 1221, which we believe in agriculture. And sure, we might have a bias. And the bill today, as it's introduced, might not be perfect. That's why we have amendments. But we're working on a solution that can help our rural communities the communities as a whole, and then also help the farmers and ranchers in those rural communities. So we still have, are hopeful that we can maybe get these water issues right, because that's what Senate Bill 1221 is trying to do. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? I mean, I know you were at the news conference on Tuesday night as well. Um, yeah, I was there for that. Unfortunately, we're sitting in the back with our signs and we couldn't hear the speakers very well. I should have been standing behind the press corps so I could have heard what they were all saying. But it's, It was it, all good because I was over by the press corps. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, you were over there taking pictures too and I ended up on some of your Facebook feeds and people were telling me, he says, you didn't look like you were happy. And I said, look at everybody else. I don't think anybody in that crowd was happy at that point in time <laughs> yeah. with what was going on here. So. Um, I, you know, and back to the back to the consumer. I mean, just one more little tidbit because I've heard this before. I mean, there's this huge disconnect, and I think that I've heard this. Uh, somebody says, "Well, how come they don't have this out here?" Oh, don't worry about it. It's in the back room. That's where they get it from. They don't realize that it came from a farm. But uh, yeah, water is is critical. I mean, and you just touched on food security also, which is a big issue in the United States. I mean, we don't have, we have one of the strictest growing policies due to the EPA, which is not bad compared to the rest of the world. Um, And it's very disheartening and discouraging. Right. Well, Romy, we had another great hour. Oh, (laughs) one quarter of the pesticides, half the water, twice the harvest, and Yuma County producing one and a half million salad servings a day. It's amazing. And you blow can, my mind. You uh-huh. can do your part by signing up for a Farm Bureau membership. Only $60 a year. AZFB.org. Next month, Ancient Grains.